The scripture reading comes from Romans 14, verses 1 through 13. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputed matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another's whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own masters, servants stand and fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make your mind not to, be, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Thank you, Bob. Shall we pray? Eternal God, your spirit inspired those who wrote the Bible and enlightens us to hear your word afresh every day. Help us to rely always on your promises from the scriptures as we walk by faith and as we serve Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the irreverent comedy, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is a mock-up of the King Arthur tales, if you're not familiar with it, There is a scene where one of the knights, Sir Bedivere, is confronted by a group of villagers. It seems they have grabbed one of the local women and claimed she is a witch. It's very very obvious that her crooked long nose has been tied on and she's been dressed up in black clothing to look like a witch. So Sir Bedivere questions the evidence and the people confess that they made it all up, but they want to burn her at the stake just the same. It occurs to me that we may not judge people as witches anymore, but we do judge them by everything else under the sun. We judge them by 
their clothing, their jobs, their friends, the kind of car they drive, the music they listen to, their hairstyle, their family, even where they live. We love jumping to conclusions, don't we? For some of us, it's the best exercise we get. Isn't that what normal people do? But let's not forget we're not the normal people. We're abnormal because we've given our lives to Jesus and we've given our, ourselves to the world to love it as God has loved it. And through him, we're called to live by different standards. God calls us to love one another, to treat everyone we meet in the same manner, no matter what. We're not called to live in, let's call it judgment house, where the doors are locked, bolted, there's no handle on the outside, and you can only get in if someone lets you in. No, we're called to live in, let's call it grace house, whose door is always open and a welcoming smile is there to greet you. And if a smile isn't waiting for you as you enter, it's not because you're not welcome, it's because the people in that house have gone out in search of other people who need a place to belong. As we continue to look at Romans, let's look into what Paul has to say about belonging and in which house we ought to live. Paul's letter to the Romans is best known for its vision of God's gracious actions toward humanity through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. As he says at the beginning of this letter, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul knows that there is something deeply wrong with the world, and for that matter, with everyone in it. This world and its people need to be saved, and the letter to the Romans tells us how God has gone about saving the world and us. Romans is deeply theological, but it's not abstract. God's salvation is not merely a concept for analytical discussion. It's also a call to action. Paul tells us how God's salvation affects our wisdom, our honesty, our judgment, our ability to endure setbacks, our character, our ethical reasoning, and most importantly, our relationships. Here in the nitty-gritty of human relationships and the need to belong is where God's salvation really takes hold. New York Times recently published a letter to the editor from a political science professor at Kent State University, um, not far from us across the state line, who claimed that Americans are becoming less religious because there is zero evidence to support any of the central claims religious institutions make about God and the supernatural. Maybe it's just me but it seems more than just a bit ironic that the professor gives zero evidence for his claim. Well, I can only assume he's making such an erroneous assumption because he's writing out of his field. He's writing with no personal engagement in this subject. But what surprises me more is the fact that the New York Times chooses to publish his letter, thereby giving his... Uh, 
uh, his letter national platform for its distribution. Paul's letter to the Romans had no national platform, except for the struggling small churches in the first century. Written sometime during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, hints of darkness and dangers surrounding these little churches. They comprise both Jewish and Gentile converts to Christ, and anti-Jewish sentiment within the Roman Empire was so rampant that they were indeed uh, in danger. Paul's extended reflection on God's faithfulness to both Jew and Gentile in his letter then is not an abstraction of the ways of God, but a skillful commentary on the historical events that were surrounding them and the consequences of these events. The result being a practical set of tools for living in this world as a follower of Christ. Romans has been exceptionally important in the development of Christian theology too. To give you one quick example, uh, Martin Luther broke with Pope Leo X largely because of his disagreement with what the Catholic Church perceived Romans to teach. And of course today we have a basic understanding of Paul's general points from Romans, but we, we should pause and consider all of them before we apply them to any setting here in the 21st century. On Back to Church Sunday, I've chosen to apply Paul's letter as he writes, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And I'm applying that to the time and place in which we are now living. Our strong desire on this Back to Church Sunday is to open our doors to welcome the curious, the discouraged, the confused, the lonely, any who are feeling beaten down by this world. I sincerely want us to hear Paul's message that we all belong, all of us. By accepting one another, we can overcome any squabbles that separate us. As Paul writes at the beginning of his discussion, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The weak in faith, by the way, for Paul, were those who lacked confidence in their own convictions and relied on dietary rules governing their actions. It, in the first century, you might say it was sort of following a Jewish vegan diet. And therefore, uh, some of the Jewish Christians kept these strict dietary laws and were offended by other Christians who consumed non-kosher food or drink. Although they regarded their strictness as a strength, Paul is calling it a weakness when it causes them to judge those who do not share their convictions. Nevertheless, Paul's response to their weakness is not to argue with them, not to ignore their beliefs, not to belittle them, but to do everything he could do to make them feel accepted in the community of faith. See, those who flaunted their freedom to eat anything because of the grace of God in Christ 
would require the kosher keepers either to break fellowship with them or to violate their own conscience. If there is no kosher meat to be found, then the kosher, non-kosher, should join the kosher and eat only vegetables, is what Paul is suggesting. He says it this way in verses 20 and 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Both groups feel strongly uh, that their views are moral. The strong believe that the, for a Gentile to keep kosher would be to co- contradict God's grace in Jesus Christ. The weak believe that not keeping kosher by merely eating with people who don't keep kosher is an affront to God and a violation of the law. The argument is heated because we've got freedom on one side, we've got obedience on the other. Often the kind of sides that people take nowadays in arguments. The bottom line is this, relationships in the faith community are what is most important. Relationships. Living in Christ is not about being right or wrong on any particular issue. It is about being in a right relationship with the living God and with one another. Moral disagreements can be more difficult in the workplace where there's even less common ground. An important aspect to consider here is Paul's special concern for the weak. Although he tells both groups not to be judging each other, he places a greater practical burden on the strong. In chapter 15, if we fast forward to verse 3 there, Paul says, Our model is Jesus, for even Christ did not please himself. This means those who are in the right or in the majority or who, who otherwise have the most power are called to voluntarily refrain from violating the conscience of the others. I don't know about you, but in most workplaces, the, it works the opposite. The weak must accommodate themselves to the dictates of the strong, even if doing so violates their conscience. Let me give you one quick example of this. Uh, Let's say someone in your workplace has religious or moral convictions that require a modesty of dress, like covering the hair or the shoulders or the legs. These convictions would be, according to Paul's way of speaking about it, a weakness. But you or I wouldn't object to a person wearing modest dress themselves. This is where, where Paul comes down. He would say, in order to keep acceptance and reconciliation within the workplace, everyone in the workplace should abide by this standard as well, which is, for me, kind of a stretch. But that's what he's saying. He would say we should not be tisking about someone else's dress, language, or taste in music. Imagine that we Christians had a reputation for making everyone feel accepted, wherever whenever, rather than judging their tastes or habits. Do you suppose acting that way would help or hinder our witness for Christ in the world? I think I know the answer. We all need Christ, but the other thing we all need is each other. 
That is to say, uh, we can't live in Grace House, as I called it before, by ourselves. We can't live in there as a single occupant. That would not be living for the Lord. Verse 8 is a verse that I often repeat, uh, usually, have to be honest, at a graveside. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. So Paul is saying, we all belong because we belong to the Lord. A pastor was visiting one of his parishioners, and during the conversation, the woman stood up and pointed out the window to her neighbor's backyard. She said, you see the wash that lady hangs out? Look how dirty it is. She never hangs out a clean wash. Feeling somewhat uncomfortable, the pastor tried to move the conversation along and exit as soon as he could. And as he was leaving, the lady walked onto the front porch with him, and again, the wash next door was clearly visible to them both, and they both realized at the same moment that the wash next door was sparkling white, whiter than any wash could be. And then they both realized that it wasn't the wash that was dirty, it was the windows they were looking through. Which house do you live in? Judgment house or grace house? You and I have been challenged to be different from the world. We've learned the basics of faith and we've received instructions for living. Now we're challenged by the apostle to live for the Lord. But we can't do that by ourselves and for certain, we can't do that in judgment house. We can only do it in grace house. The weak and the strong, they all belong. So do you think your windows could use a bit of cleaning? God bless this simple witness to his word. Amen. Thank you for joining us. A video recording of this service can be found on YouTube or Facebook by searching for Kenmar Church. 